Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you today. It's good to have Bobo back. Good to see you, Bobs. Good to see all of you guys so early. I think to Sarah, I normally go to the evening meeting, and so I've, I haven't quite got my timing right for 8 a.m., so I was like screeching in here at 8.03. I was like, wow, this is how some people live. Like, this is amazing. But it's, it's so good to be with you guys. It really is. Um, and I know that that was a big chunk of reading, but when I was asked earlier this week, what is there a portion of the scripture that you, you're going to preach from? I just thought, it's such an incredible chapter of text. Can we just do the whole thing? And, and to the powers that be's credit, they said, okay, cool, let's do it. So I'm so glad that we got to, we got to dive into all of that. And we really are going to be working through all of that um, this evening. But for those of you who don't, I mean, this morning, sorry, it's dark and the lights and yeah. Um, <laughs> it might happen once or twice more. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Ali. Um, I'm working at a company in town called OfferZen. We help software engineers and companies find each other, so it's a pretty exciting space. And um, this morning, we're looking at Exodus 19, and I was so excited that I got to preach on this, on this chapter because it's been such a challenging, foundational chapter of my faith. Um, it's a chapter that I've come back to again and again. And it's one that particularly arrested me in my second year of varsity. I've kind of been in and out of church from a a young age, and I had a major crisis of faith at the beginning of my second year, and I started realizing there were so many things that I believed because my parents believed them, you know, and they'd been passed down to me, and I didn't know why I believed things, and so I really started to take this deep look at the Bible and going, well, what does it actually claim? And the, the thing that really first struck me about this passage, about Exodus 33, which is kind of a similar theme, and a couple of other passages throughout the Bible, was, was this, and I want to share it with you. Of all the world's major religions, Christianity is the only one that claims that we can be in God's presence now, in this life, and that that's an experiential reality. Okay, can I share that with you again? <laughs> because there's a lot of words. Christianity is the only religion of all the world's religions that claims that we can be in God's presence now, in this life, and that that's an experiential thing. And that really, really made me think. Uh, that's not what the other religions teach at all. That probably also stuck out to me. Uh, what struck me was that in those religions, God is supreme and powerful and creator, but there's a distance. You know, there's a distance. He's far above us. He's set apart from us. He's, uh, I don't know, he's different to us. And there's that chasm between God and man. God's to be worshipped and submitted to, but, you know, he's not really to be experienced and enjoyed. And I think that what struck me, too, in my cynical varsity space was if I were to make up a religion, okay, if I were to design a religion, I, I would want to try and keep as much control over the people who followed my religion as possible, okay? I would not want to uh, create such an exposing claim. I would have tried to say something like, uh, you can actually, you can go and uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit, but that's not something that you're going to experience. That's just the reality. You just have to believe that you are. That's probably what I would have said. And I was very struck that the Bible never says that. The Bible says over and over again that God is relational, that we can come into his presence, that his Holy Spirit dwells within us, 
that we can experience him in a tangible way. Do you see why that's so exposing for Christianity? Because it's saying you can go and experience God for yourself. And that's not something that you need some holy person to do on your behalf. You can go into God's presence. That's such a massive claim because it implies that there's an invitation for you and for me today. If we really can experience God in this life, then it's an invitation to us, not just to people back then, to actually come into God's presence, to experience His love, His joy, His peace, it's an invitation to experience a God who's not far off, who's not distant, but is very, very close to us. And so I just wanted to share that with you before we kind of got started, that those were some of the things that were stirring in my heart as a result of this passage, and we're going to go into those details over the next 30 minutes or so, God willing. Okay, so where are we going today? Well, we're going to basically just walk through this chapter. We're going to look at four things. God's covenant and people. We're going to look at God's holiness, God's presence, and God's sacrifice. Okay, so that's a rough outline, and we're just going to walk through the text. So let's start by looking at God's covenant and people. So through the book of Exodus, God has made promises to Moses a few times. We've been able to see some of those promises fulfilled so far. Like God promised that he was going to bring his people out of Egypt, and, and he did in a miraculous way. And that one might be quite obvious. You know, we all know that's what the story of Exodus is about. But I, as I was kind of looking at this, there's another promise that God made back in Exodus chapter 3 that's being fulfilled now in Exodus chapter 19 that I missed in my reading of this. And I only saw it when I started to do some of my homework on this passage. And so I really wanted to show it to you because I think it's quite profound. Okay, so just by way of reminder, in Exodus 3, God promises to Moses that the people will come out of Egypt, they will serve him at Sinai, they're going to go into the promised land. Okay, so here's what's written in chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. They came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Okay, so Horeb, interestingly enough, is Mount Sinai, or at the very least, it's the region of Sinai. So when Moses fled Egypt originally, he came here to this mountain that we're at in Exodus 19. He came to Sinai or Horeb, he herded livestock in this region, and he has that encounter with God at the burning bush at Sinai. And remember that when God meets with Moses initially in Sinai, he makes the promise that he's going to bring Israel into the promised land. Right? I've come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up to a land that is good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And that's God's promise, that he's got this land prepared for Israel, that that land is not just any old land. You know, the, the promised land is not just not Egypt. You know, anywhere is non-Egypt, and that's, that's fine. Rather, that land is a definite place. It's Canaan. That's where God's taking his people. And then, okay, this is the thing. Then God says, I'm going to prove to you that I will fulfill my promise to bring Israel into the promised land. So it's like a deposit on his promise, right? He's saying, by this, I assure you that that final promise of bringing my people into the promised land is going to be fulfilled. And he says this to Moses in chapter 3, verse 12. I will be with you. 
And this will be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Isn't that profound? So the sign that God will be with Moses and the sign that he will bring his people into the promised land is that they're going to return to the mountain on which Moses is having this interaction with God at the burning bush in chapter 3, and they're going to serve God there. I don't think that's in the foreground of this text. It doesn't jump out to you. It didn't to me. But I think that's so helpful to see as we start chapter 19 that what we're seeing now is not just an amazing encounter with God. You know, that's kind of a new event. This is also the proof that God will eventually bring his people into the promised land. So it's God saying, you see, I fulfilled my first promise to you, and I'm going to fulfill my ultimate promise to bring my people into the promised land. And so here we are, return to Sinai, back to the mountain where God first called Moses, where the people are to serve and worship God. And so we begin the second half of the book of Exodus, pretty much. So let's look at verse 2 together. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So here's the opening of all that's to come for much of the rest of the book of Exodus. God says, I've redeemed you out of slavery. I bore you out of Egypt by my strength and my power. That's what he means by on eagle's wings. I've brought you here to me. You know, before I take you to that land flowing with milk and honey, I've brought you here to meet with me. So before he takes Israel to a destination, he's more concerned about forming their identity so he says, Israel going to be three things. First is God's treasured possession among all the people of the world. So although the world is filled with nations and peoples and tribes, they're not the Lord's treasured possession. Only Israel is the Lord's treasured possession. He has dominion over and care for the whole world, but Israel alone will be the Lord's people. He's chosen them from out amongst the people of the world. The second thing is a kingdom of priests, right? The privilege afforded to priests is that they enjoyed this intimate access to God beyond that of the rest of the people. They drew near to God on behalf of the people. Their role was to serve him. And so Israel's priests shared no portion of the land, right, when they finally get into the promised land. That's going to be true of the nation as a whole, right? The the nation will be this nation of priests. Their portion will be the Lord, You know, the Lord is going to be their reward. The third thing that Israel is going to be is a holy nation. To be holy is basically to have moral likeness to the Lord and to be set apart and distinct, you know, in Israel's context. So Israel is set apart from other people of the earth, and Israel is to act like God. They're supposed to love what he loves. They're supposed to hate what he hates. And as God says in Leviticus 19, be holy for I am holy. And so these three things are things that Israel's going to be as a result of this covenant that God is setting up now at Sinai in chapter 19. In verse 5, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
than you will be to me. So Israel's going to be God's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, if this covenant between God and Israel is upheld. So what we're seeing here is that Exodus 19 is the start of God expounding on his already existing covenant with Israel. This isn't a brand new covenant that's being made here, but it's expounding on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, right? Do you remember Ryan laying this out for us in week one? I know it was a long time ago, so I thought maybe we'd just do a quick recap. Okay, God makes this covenant with Abraham. He renews it with Isaac, Abraham's son, in Genesis 26, where he says, to you and your descendants, I'll give these lands. I will fulfill the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. He renews the covenant with Jacob, Isaac's son, at Bethel in Genesis 28, 13, 15. I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, right? The God of Isaac. You see it's being passed down. The land on which you lie, I'll give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. And now, where we are in Exodus 19, God is renewing the same covenant with Moses and the people of Israel 400 years later. So whereas Abraham was one man, Isaac was one man, Jacob was one man, now the Lord's renewing this covenant with a nation of people. So while this covenant to Abraham was fairly simple, in the second half of the book of Exodus, he really expounds on what this covenant entails. If Israel is going to be his chosen people and they need to uphold his covenant, what does that mean? In many ways, the remainder of the covenant decrees and stipulations are God expounding on these three promises laid out in verses five and six. You know, it's, it's basically the answer to Israel asking, How does a holy holy nation of the Lord's priests, God's treasured possession, conduct themselves? You know, how do they eat? How do they dress? How do they govern and interact with one another? And so as God renews this covenant, he lays out stipulations of what that entails. God lays it out to Moses. Moses goes to tell the people what the Lord has said, and the people readily accept the terms of the covenant. They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. No arguments from their side. So let's look at God's holiness. In verse 9, God says to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe you forever. What's about to take place over the next few chapters is to announce to all the nation of Israel that Moses is the one through whom God is revealing his word to his people. God is publicly endorsing Moses to the whole nation of Israel. And so now the Lord gives Moses and the people of Israel a warning and the steps that they need to carry out to prepare for his coming, right? They're to consecrate themselves. That's to make themselves ritually, ceremonially pure. They're going to be physically clean, right? They're going to go and actually wash their garments and they're going to prepare for three days. Why? Because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. The thing that is so important here is that the Lord himself will come down on Mount Sinai. The Lord himself will be there. 
They must consecrate themselves because God is absolutely perfect, holy, set apart. Nothing unclean or sinful can come into his presence. The people cannot even touch the mountain upon which God is going to descend. Right now, there's nothing holy in and of Mount Sinai itself. Mount Sinai is not the special thing. The mountain will be made holy because God's presence will be there. That's what makes it holy. You with me? And so no one is to come near that mountain. No one is to go up the mountain or even touch the edge of it. Even animals who touch the mountain uh, are supposed to be stoned. Right? This mountain is going to briefly be the place where God manifests his glory. And because of that, no one can go near it. Right? If you touch the mountain, you'll be put to death. And because you're unclean, an executioner isn't even going to get his hands dirty. Isn't that significant? It's like there's going to be distance between us and the unclean thing. And this is really essential to see. What's being implied here is that Israel is an unclean, unholy, sinful people who cannot go into the presence of God. They cannot go into God's presence. Not just legally, you know, just, just like we're not allowing you to go into God's presence. We just don't want you to go into God's presence. It's physically and spiritually. If Israel were to go up that mountain and into God's presence, they would die. Why? Because God's holiness does not abide with sin. It expels sin. So if you're a sinful person, you cannot come into God's presence. That's what's being implied at this point of the text. So let's read from verse 16 together. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So the last time Moses was here at Sinai was just him and God spoke to him through a burning bush. And now it's Moses and the whole nation of Israel and the mountain itself is burning and shaking, right? That's what Sinai looks like. You know, that's the mountain. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I think about this every time I come to this passage. Can you imagine being an Israelite and standing at the base of that mountain? This is what Sinai looks like. This is the actual picture of Mount Sinai. Imagine yourself at the base of that mountain. Don't imagine that you're Moses for a moment, okay? I know we often identify with the main character, but imagine that you're just an everyday Israelite. You've been tramping through the desert for three months. You know you're going to a new land. You don't know where it is. You've stopped here at the base of this mountain, a little tent, one of thousands And you've been told in three days, God himself is going to descend on this mountain. You've been told to consecrate yourself because God is holy and you're not. And for three days, you and everyone around you have been fastidious about staying clean in preparation for this moment. Everything has been scrubbed. And you're standing at the base of this mountain. Everything is normal. It's just a normal day. 
you and all the nation of Israel around you, thousands and thousands of you. you know, and, and then we watch as the cloud descends on this mountain, thick and black, you know, and thunder booms and lightning flashes. And suddenly a trumpet sounds from somewhere in that storm and it calls and calls. And you see fire and thick smoke billowing up from that mountain and the earth begins to shake under your feet. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I think I would have been terrified. It says that the nation of Israel trembled. I think that some of it I could have experienced in some way, shape, or form. Like, maybe this is just a crazy storm. But I think that when that trumpet began to sound, something completely other than a natural occurrence, it must have been a terrifying experience. And so it's you among the nation of Israel Then imagine seeing Moses, your tiny, powerless little dude, as he stands before this mountain. His voice can't be heard over the sound of the trumpet and the storm, but you can see he's speaking. And out of the burning mountain and the sound of the trumpet, God answers man in crashing thunder. They must have been overcome with awe and with fear. And then we see something striking, something that we've not truly seen in the scriptures until now, something incredible and almost unthinkable. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord descends on Sinai, his presence is there on Sinai, it's not a representation of who God is, it's the Lord himself, and he calls Moses up to where he is. He calls Moses to come into his presence. That might not seem particularly significant to us right now. That might not seem like something really worth mentioning or pausing at, but if we rush over this, I think we lose a lot of what Exodus 19 is displaying. And I wanted to ask Christ followers specifically this morning, What does this passage do to you? Is what is happening here deeply significant to you? If I'm honest, the first time I came to this passage, it didn't really feel amazing to me. You might be asking yourself some of the questions that I ask myself. Like, isn't this just what happens when you pray, basically? Isn't this just what happens when you worship? You know, we come into God's presence, don't we? When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, and that's the way that it is. You know, isn't that quite normal? It's cool that Moses got to experience some of that. I think that's what many, many Christ followers across the world would also echo. You know, I would echo that. But in my own life, that's a red flag for me. That's a red flag for me because when my response to a text is the exact opposite of what the text is trying to display— I think I need to stop and ask myself, why? Why am I disconnecting from what this text is trying to get across to me? The thing that is so striking about this text is that Moses is doing what no one has done before. You know, Moses is going into God's presence. People have spoken to God. People have communed with God, but not experienced him and come into the holy presence of God. We act like that's a normal thing. Like anyone can do it, like it's a daily thing, it's normal, it's the way life is. We act like nothing special is happening. 
And I wanted to ask you a question that I've asked myself many times in this passage, which is, when was the last time that you felt a sense of awe that you're coming into God's presence? When was the last time you're truly in awe of that moment, you know, of what was happening, really? Does the fact that we can come into the presence of the living God, the almighty God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, does that do something to you? Does it feel a bit plain? I'm not saying that every time we pray, we need to have this deep emotional experience, that we need to feel like our lives have changed every time we pray. I'm not really just talking about raw emotion. That is a good thing to consider too. I'm more asking us to consider when was the last time that we went to pray, that we went to worship, and we thought to ourselves, man, this is big. This is big. I'm coming into God's presence. It's not a small thing that's taking place. This is me. I don't deserve this. But I'm meeting with the glorious God above all, the Almighty, the King of Kings. I'm coming into His presence. This is so huge. I find myself growing dull to this often. I need to remind myself of it again and again. For me personally, I've saved at a pretty young age. I was in and out of church growing up. I think because God has been a part of my life for so long, if I'm not careful, I can really get complacent about how glorious it is. Because when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, when God's own Spirit dwells within you, you know, we can lose perspective sometimes of what's so significant about that. We can begin to feel like, yeah, I've got the Spirit dwelling within me. So do many of you. So do many of the people that I know. And that's, that's great. But to come into the presence of the living God is something that people did not do. And if I were an Israelite, the fact that Moses was going up that mountain, I think would have blown my mind. There is a problem here, though. And it's in verse 21, and I want us to look at it together. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to them, Go down and come up and bring Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So here's the problem as I see it. If God is as holy as we've said, so holy that even to come near him is to die, right? because sin cannot be in his presence, then why can Moses come into his presence? Right? Why has God passed over or ignored or disregarded Moses' sin? If the people had to consecrate themselves and had to ensure that they did not even touch the bottom of this mountain, let alone go up it, because God is so perfectly holy that you know, a sinful being cannot be in his presence, then why is it that Moses gets to go up? Is Moses not sinful? Should he not be dead when he touches the mountain? And he should be, is the answer. He should be dead. He's not a sinless man, as we've clearly seen. 
He was as flawed and broken as you and I. And so I'd ask you to follow with me carefully now, please. The reason that Moses could ascend this burning and shaking mountain, come into the presence of a holy God, is the same reason that the Holy Spirit can dwell within every Christ follower. Okay, so here's why. In Romans 3, Paul expounds on this very issue. How is it that God passed over Moses and other Old Testament, Testament people's sin? He didn't punish them immediately, right? How is that reasonable? This is probably the headiest part of what we're going to look at today. So bear with me. It'll all come together. Read carefully with me in Romans 3. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So from verse 23, there is no special or exempt person, right? Everyone has sinned, Moses too, and has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone deserves to die when they touch that mountain. And you and I, because of our sin, because we've chosen to live life by our own set of rules, when faced with the Almighty God, we also deserve to die. But if we're justified, that is to be made right before God so that we're no longer counted as sinners, then that justification is given to us only through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, if we want to be righteous before God, if we want to be not full of sin, but free from sin, that's only possible through faith in Christ. Why? Because God has given Christ as a propitiation. That's a wrath-removing sacrifice. Sacrifice that takes away punishment. And Christ died in our place. It's as if all of us were standing before that mountain. And God told us that if we touch it, we die. We see the glory of his presence manifested on that mountaintop. And then we see Jesus himself descending from that mountain, perfect and sinless. He's God himself. And he comes to us. He comes to you. And he takes the sin off your shoulders. You know, imagine that. He, he takes it off your shoulders, and it's as if he comes to each one of us. He takes it off his shoulders, and he puts it on his own. And then he turns, and he walks away from us, and he touches the foot of that mountain, and he dies in our place along with our sin because he bears our sin now. That's what it's like. And now, because I'm really clean, now because I'm really righteous, because Jesus has taken my sin, I can go up that mountain. I can run up that mountain into God's presence without fear of death, knowing that my sin is paid for, knowing that I don't have to die because Jesus has died in my place. That's what Paul means when he says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus died in our place, bearing our sins so that we could be with God. Isn't that incredible? How does that relate to Moses? Okay, then let's look at Romans 3, verse 25 together. All of this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he's passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Jesus' death was to proclaim to all the world, God is righteous. God punishes every single sin. There's not one single wrong that he's been committed that he will not punish. We can see in the cross that God is just and fair because he punishes every wrongdoing. Jesus' death proclaims to the world that he's righteous today because in his divine forbearance, his patience, his tolerance, right, he seemed to pass over sins that happened before the death of Jesus. It seemed like he ignored them. Are you following me? So we and the Israelites at the time might look like we're doing at Moses and ask, how could a sinful man come into the presence of God? To which Paul explained, Moses and us come into God's presence because a sin was paid for on the cross by Jesus. God passed over that sin. He did not ignore it. It was laid on the shoulders of Christ. And this is to show that God is just, that he punishes sin, that he's a good judge who defends those who've been wronged. And he upholds right over wrong. It's to show he's the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And that it's because of God that we made right, not because of me. It's because he's taken my sin, not because I've done away with it. Isn't that glorious? In the cross, we see that God is just, that every sin is paid for, either by me or by Christ on the cross. Those are the only two options. God never ignores sin. And we see that God is the justifier, the one who makes us right uh, if we have faith in Jesus. So to sum this all up, I wanted to turn to Jesus in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's exactly it, isn't it? That's exactly what we've been speaking about in this text. No one us sinful people, the Israelites, come to the Father, up the mountain, into God's presence, except through Jesus, by his sacrifice, because he's the way, the truth, and the life. That's exactly what we've seen. Isn't that amazing? God is holy and righteous. We're sinful people separated from God by our sin. We deserve to be separated from him forever. And the only way to come to God is To be with him is to have faith in Jesus. He takes our sin on himself. He dies in our place. And now we can come into the presence of God. His Holy Spirit dwells not on a mountain, not in a temple, not in a church, but within every Christ follower. I'd love to invite the band up. And I'd love to invite us all to stand as we pray. If you're not a Christ follower and you're joining us this morning, this is quite a text that we've looked at today. God is holy and righteous. He's good and loving. He's perfect in all his ways. But I wanted to share with you that he's real. We're not talking about metaphor here. You know, I remind you what I wrestled with in my second year. It's not a metaphorical claim. You just have to believe that the Holy Spirit is within you and and that's all. But the invitation before you today is, do you want to experience the living God? Do you want to experience the Holy Spirit genuinely? Do you want to go up that mountain? You can. You can. You need only to put your faith in Jesus. 
You need him to take your sin on his shoulders so that you can go into God's presence. You can't go there without him. You can't get to God without God. If you want that, believe in him. If you want that, I invite you to pray to him now. Ask him to forgive your sins, to come and take those from you, to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And if that's you, I'd love to encourage you to come and pray with me, with Sam and Jane after this. We'd love to do that. We'd love to pray with you. If you're a Christ follower, we're going to respond in worship, but I would love to invite you just to prepare your hearts with me now. So if I could ask all of us just to close our eyes. If you're feeling like you don't remember the last time that you felt the sense of awe that we're coming into God's presence, might it be the fact that you can come into God's presence at all has become normal? Or perhaps that we don't really expect to meet with God himself. If that's you, oh man, I just want to remind you of God's mercy, his grace, his love, his patience with us. Let's ask him to fill us with his Holy Spirit now. God, would you come and fill us afresh? God, we just invite you. Pour out your love, your grace, your peace. Come and fill us, Holy Spirit. Would you remind us of who you really are? Would you give us that fresh sense of awe as we consider who you are and what a privilege it is to come into your presence this morning? Imagine we're at that, the foot of that mountain, surrounded by thousands of people. Let's imagine the storm raging above our heads. Imagine the fire and the smoke and the smell of the smoke and the heat coming down off the peaks. Imagine hearing that trumpet sound piercing through the thunder. Imagine hearing God call Moses up to be with him. You watch Moses slowly climb up that mountain, disappear into the storm. You know he's in God's presence. Then imagine that you hear out of the storm, God call you to come up that mountain and be with him. Step out from among the people, walk up towards the base of that mountain, up into the clouds, the smoke, up to where God is. We're here today to worship our God who is worthy of our praise. Here to sing to Him, to lift Him up, to exalt Him, who is holy and perfect and righteous. Father, we praise You. We praise You that You're our Savior. We praise you that you've died in our place. We praise you that you've made a way. We praise you that we can come into your presence through your sacrifice. God, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve to be in your presence. Father, we repent for where this has been normal. But we praise you for your grace and your mercy, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are worthy, worthy, worthy of our praise, God. Let's respond in worship.